Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking, and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. I'm very pleased today to welcome Keir Milburn to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Keir is a British writer, activist and lecturer in political economy and organisation at the University of Leicester. He has a special interest in generational politics and is the author of Generation Left, exploring the large-scale move to the left by young people in Britain. Keir's research also explores the potential for progressive governance, in particular public commons partnerships, as a means to socialise the way we process economic decisions. So thank you very much, Keir, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm very interested in uh, seeing what we're going to discuss. <laughs> yes. Well, I sent over those questions, but they were just to mislead you. I have a completely other agenda. No. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll just see how we go. I mean, the, the work and research you've been doing uh, overlaps uh, a few key areas that are, are, are of central interest to this podcast. Um, uh, work on governance, uh, work also on social uh, movements and, and, and politics, and, and you're very involved in that. And I'm very interested to get your, your view on the current uh, current situation. Um, can you just maybe just set the scene a little bit and, and talk a little bit about your background and, and what your current work focus is, Keir? Yeah, well, um, it depends how far you want to go back in my background. I sort of grew up in uh, the 1980s in Wales and up the Welsh Valleys. And if I, yeah, it's probably relevant. And so that, like, you know, the 1984-85 minor strike was probably a pretty formative moment in my worldview. If I, if I look back on it, yes. I actually grew up in. I grew up in a valley, uh, a, the next valley across from the miners' hall in the film Pride. If you've ever seen the film Pride, right? You know, the gay support the miners. I'm constantly telling my daughter, you know, look, I grew up. That's the world I grew up in. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we exist in a slightly different world now. Yes. Um, yeah. And then I sort of been a political activist for. Um, since the early 90s, in fact, to uh, out myself. <laughs> uh, and so I've been like writing and been participating in social movements since that time. I'm also an academic. I teach political economy and organization at the University of Leicester. Um, and my current work is a little bit scattered. It all, it all fits into one project in my head, <laughs> but in nobody else's. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I just, I, I published a book last year called Generation Left, which is about political generations actually but like departing from the current generation gap the political generation gap which was really really prevalent actually in the in the uh, election just before christmas as it was in two, 2017 actually so we'll probably talk about that a little bit later um you know about what that means you know, what what does it mean that age is actually like the the key distinction between uh or the the key dynamic um uh uh well, in the general election, in the general election just before Christmas, you know, the, the, you know, the age was the big difference, right? The huge difference in in, in uh, voting intention amongst the youngest to oldest. Um, in 2017, this just emerged almost out of almost out of nowhere, right? This this gap, um, and it emerged, and it's, it's almost like a straight line. So in the in the 2017 election, it was for every 10 years older than 18, you were you were nine percent more likely to vote conservative. So 18 to 24 year olds voting 75 percent, perhaps a little bit higher for the Labour Party, um, you know, and like you know, 
uh, 15-20% vote for the Conservatives and the the opposite at the at the at 65 over 65s right the opposite dimension 75% voting for Conservatives 20% voting for for Labour those were both totally true both in in 2017 and 2019 but in 2017 it was a complete straight line you know every 10 years older you just went straight up and the only difference in 2019 was there was a drop off of support for the Labour Party amongst 50 to 60 year olds. Yes, well, I'd, I'd like to come back to some of the, yeah. the, the those issues. We'll um, certainly, we'll come back to that, yeah. yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. And um, now, I mean, clearly, there are no shortage of worrying environmental and and indeed other crises facing us. I'm just wondering what uh, is on your mind and keeps you awake at the moment. Well, yeah, you know, it is the climate crisis, <laughs> the scale of uh, the scale of the climate crisis. Um, uh, but re, but well, if I'm honest, what keeps me awake is I don't keep I get keep kept awake when when you sort of start feeling impotent in the face of that. <laughs> uh, I, I basically try to deal with most things in a sort of political strategic sense, which gives me some sort of like agency over them. Do you know what I mean? And so I can sleep safely, even though the prospects for mankind are actually very very worrying. It's the, it's the, it's those times when, well, look, you know, just after the election, I had a few sleepless nights. Because, you know, it's that feeling of sadness in a, I could be specific about it, sadness in a sort of Spinozan sense. Uh, so sadness is like, you know, this, uh, the, the feeling of your of, a, of diminishing your ability to affect or be affected by the world. And that, that feeling generally diminishes because, you know, the sense of connectedness of other people breaks down. Do you know what I mean? It's the opposite of joy for Spinoza. Joy is that feeling that comes when you, when you connect with other people in a productive way and therefore you feel as though you have more of an ability to affect the world or be affected by the world. And, you know, it's sadness that keeps me up at night. <laughs> and of course those, those, those dark <laughs> midnight hours are, uh, are those when, when sadness sort of creeps in, do you know what I mean? So I think it would, if I'm honest, I, I put it that way. I, the climate crisis is something which we, which we, um, which we work, we carry around with us all the time, but we normally just keep it just out of view. Do you know what I mean? Perhaps just behind this left ear here, right? And then at night it creeps into view and you think, oh, good God, uh, we're in serious straits. Do you know? Yes, well, I've, I've, I have a little bit more juggling to do on that front, Keir. <laughs> Coming back again and again to these questions here, here on the yeah, podcast. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, and I, I think I saw uh, maybe in some of your social media or, or some of your writing uh, something about this idea about, you know, that the climate crisis or global warming impacts all our political projects or impacts our political projects, certainly in terms of uh, the time frame and so forth. I'm just wondering, could you maybe talk a little bit about that yeah <clears throat> i mean it depends who the all all our political projects because the the point is i think most political projects are basically in effect climate change denialist projects because we we find it almost impossible to, to face up to the level of transformation that that like this just the scientific consensus implies is necessary do you know what i mean i think we could put it this way right i think there's a gap there's a gap at the moment between the necessary and the possible, right? So, like, what 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 is necessary to do? The level and scale of transformation that's le- that's necessary to do um, is sort of it's not set outside of human intention, but like you know, it is conditioned by these physical attributes of of you know the carrying capacity of the atmosphere, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, you know, which which basically doesn't care about our feelings, if you like. <laughs> you know, we uh, and if you look at like um, the work of people like 
Rockstrom or Kate Raworth who come up with these ideas of a safe and just operating space for humanity. They sort of map the, the nine Earth system processes upon which continued human civilization depends and say, these are the points at which we we will uh, move beyond the stable state of those processes. Therefore, any socially and economic order you need needs to fit within these this safe operating space for humanity. The point is we are not headed there, right? And in fact, uh, from from current, you know, uh, the, our current view of what is socially and politically possible it is impossible to get there, right? There's a gap between the necessary and the possible, right? Of the, the the possible is something which you can act on and change, right? That does depend on, uh, to a much larger extent, on like, you know, human action, etc. Right? But we have a very constrained conception of what it is possible to do. You know, we can, you know, we can look at the Labour leadership election and we could read it through that. You know, we, we everyone's starting from the wrong point there. You know, we need we know what where we need to go to or the rough coordinates of, of the sorts of society we need to get to. And we can sort of backcast from that. Right. We can sort of backcast from that and re- re- think, OK, so there are intermediate stages we need to get to. And then we can forecast from what is currently possible. But, you know, the, the point is we have to bridge that gap between the necessary and the possible probably in an iterative way. Do you know what I mean? And what I mean by that is that we need projects which change conditions and those change conditions set up um, the possibility to go further. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Yes. And I think that's, yeah, I think that's very interesting because we talk about political projects, but you know, the degree to which um, the, I guess the intersection between social and social political projects, uh, social change, political change. Uh, we, we've seen, you know, the, the, the left comprehensively defeated in, in, in the recent general election here in the UK. And, you know, just a brutal and cynical strategy of the, 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 the Tories where they, they don't even turn up to a debate on climate change. They just don't even turn up. Um, you know, it's, it's such a hugely important, you know, existential question we're facing. So it, it does bring up this question. I know you've, you've, you've thought about this over, over, over some time. The, the role of, I guess, you know, culture, cultural activism, countercultural movements, uh, on social change, given in particular some of the, uh, deadlock we've seen in, in, in political terms, uh, and, and, and regression. In, in America and indeed in the UK and, and some of the structural impediments that are just there. Yeah. Well, cause, cause one of the other projects I'm involved in or other political projects is this, I do a podcast myself called ACFM, uh, which comes out on Navarra media and it's, it revolves around this concept of acid communism, which is one of Mark Fisher, who's a social theorist, one of his ideas. And we, we would, we were playing around with the idea of acid Corbynism. I'm not sure if that name is going to survive anymore. Uh, but and it's very much about this idea of like what thinking through cultural activism, countercultural movements, and looking back to the countercultural movements of the, the nineteen late nineteen sixties, early seventies, really into the nineteen eighties. I say I sort of grew up in the sort of like that post punk culture of the early nineteen eighties. Do you know what I mean? It really, really formed me that the sort of um, the expectations that that uh, of what what you. Of what a good person would be, what an interesting person. It's not a good. What an interesting person would look like. Really, has informed the rest of my life. Really, you know, and it, um, and it would be this thing of like, you know, that 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 post-punk era was very much an era of like you might talk about it as like working-class autodidacts. Do you know what I mean? Very much like you know the early. I grew up in the South Wales Valleys, and like you know, in the nineteen thirties and. 
40s you know that was the pinnacle of like working class culture around the world the the mining communities of that and then sort of like the drive for self self-education but not self-education as a way to escape your class but a way to improve the class as a whole do you know what i mean i see those two eras as sort of in some way have, have a very have similar sort of like um sort of the subjectivities that they develop out of them and so basically our acfm project is looking back at those those eras and thinking about you know what what um what lost futures that did those eras create that they thought that they were those eras thought they were going towards they didn't go towards what what could we reopen of those lost futures in some sort of ways but i think that also relates to this age divide because we had you did mention <laughs> the generation uh because uh, in because I, 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 I especially in relation to climate change I, I i find it really hard not to look at this election that's just gone and think uh basically people people chose fantasy and denial and looking away from uh, as against you know facing up to the problems that were and the crises that were in the midst of do you know what i mean especially because labor often this green new deal um you know lots of other sort of you know um you know quite innovative policies which you know no matter what you thought of them they were trying to genuinely trying to face up to a whole series of crises that have been going on for a long time but like i've just been in crisis mode at least since 2008 do you know what i mean financial crisis of 2008 and it's sort of like we it's sort of we basically decided or the country decided or perhaps it'd be better the property pensioners decided not to face up up to those right uh and so so to complicate that little picture i'm giving is that like the reason that we in and the acfm crew are so interested in the 1960s and 1970s was bit because we think now there is a left generation. Young people have, uh, have shifted decisively to the left and they are trying to work out what the relevant ideas for this moment are. Right? And the last time there was a nascent left generation was in the 1960s and 1970s. Right? And that they basically, that generation, which are also called the boomers, they got defeated. That's what neoliberalism, that is the defeat of the boomers in the 1980s and 1990s primarily. You know, and so that's got a couple of consequences. One consequence is all of the problems that that 1960s, 1970s left generation formed around went unresolved because they were defeated and are now lingering around. We have the return of the repressed. They're lingering around in unresolved form with 30 years of, of intensity built into them. The most obvious one is the climate crisis, right? The eco concern with ecological issues was this, this tiny um, marginal concern in the 1970s being produced by this left movement now is is an inescapable problem right uh but also you, know, you could just look at, at, at like you know what were the other things that the, the other problems that that boomer generation were trying to grapple with that the left boomer generation were grappling with. one of them was anti-colonial struggles vietnam etc you know which basically just did not get resolved with then going to globalization etc uh you know and what and how does that come back now it comes back in you know the, the the rise of the right. You know, right iterations of that are, are, is basically, you know, uh, those colonial countries that they did not get self governance in any sort of meaningful form, uh, and then we have flows of migration flowing from both that and and the ecological crisis. Do you know what I mean? And I think the other the other thing that they formed around, or that 60s, 70s generation formed around, was that there was a glimpse of freedom actually, right in that 
in that period. It was a sort of freedom that comes out of uh, the social democratic compromise from the 19, of the post-war era, basically, where you get the welfare state and you get some sort of suspension of the link between work and destitution, right? For the, so probably for the first time, well, perhaps the first time in human history, right? For a significant part of a population in, in particular parts of the world, you know, if you if you didn't have a job, that didn't mean that, or you you decided to work less, that didn't mean that you'd be destitute, right? And in those sort of circumstances, you get things like cultural experimentation, huge cultural confidence, etc. You know, it's not surprising we, we're completely obsessed with the movement of the 1970s and 1980s. You know, freedom has material preconditions to it, you know, and I think those were there in that time. Um, and I think that, in fact, Mark Fisher, in his, in his, his he wrote a little chapter an introduction to it to, to a book he never managed to complete unfortunately uh, he killed himself a couple of years ago um he he wrote that like we can understand neoliberalism in the last 30 years as actually just all about warding off that glimpse of freedom that was produced in the 1960s and 1970s yeah, i think he calls it like a world a world uh, in which we could be free or a world without domination right uh, that was the sort of glimpse of freedom in the 1970s, and and it survived in a sort of like, it's haunted the last 30 years, and it seems very very attractive to young people now, and which is why you can see things such as, um, you know this this four day working week uh, being given real prominence when it, and in fact being you know passed up as policy in fact by the Labour Party, when just two years ago that would have been so far ex- out of the mainstream it would have been laughed out of town. Perhaps it was laughed at a town in the election, but among young people, it's very attractive, you know. Yes, yes. What, what, what do you think are a few lessons from 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 the nineteen sixties? Um, a big topic. But before we move on, uh, something you've thought about um, uh, clearly, and uh, I guess the, it's interesting, you know, the degree to which um, I guess young people see you know, political change as a possibility um, and, and the degree to which they have come out of this election uh, in the UK at least, you know, uh, in, in some way damaged or in some way, you know, uh, more aware, more energised to, to, you know, to continue to, you know, fight for what they believe in, uh, but but through other means maybe. Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll have to see, won't we, because this is the, that election was the first sort of, um, uh, experience of defeat well i don't know if that's actually true for generation left anyways it was it was i don't know if it's the first but it was an experience of defeat i mean uh, if you just look at like the 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 age and voting dynamics you know young people realize that um they are outnumbered by the over 65s i mean britain is an aging pop, an aging country you know the average age is just going up and up and up uh, because people are living longer etc cetera, etc cetera. um and and you know basically the older generation the older generations have been um uh, uh, their material interests have been constructed to be on the right okay in fact we could link, link i could link it back to this little story i was telling about how the boomers were defeated like the way they were defeated there's two there's two sort of waves to how they were defeated in the 1980s the first one i witnessed up the up the wealth valleys in the miners strike uh, they were defeated militarily <laughs> you know the police went in there i remember i remember like had 30 40 police fans in my town on their way up to go up to the mines um you know that there was, it, that town was in occupation um so it was a militarily defeated uh, as in the, the unions were smashed 
with the full force of the state. But then what happens after that is is basically the boomers got their mouths stuffed with gold. Uh, to, to paraphrase um, uh, Bevan, I think it was Bevan who said that. Um, as in, basically, the council, ho- council housing was sold off. So we have the privatisation of this wealth built up by a previous generation. This public wealth is privatised and and given, basically, because council housing was sold off with a, between about 30 and 50% discount on market price. So this is like, this is a giveaway. It's a giveaway. And what does that do? It starts a house price boom. It's about a house price boom, which is like accelerated because you have like the deregulation of finance, um, you know, and that. So basically wages have been basically stagnant in the UK, real wages, the most measures since like the, ni- the mid 1980s. So people have not got richer by having more wages. Generally, you've basically got richer by having an asset which is inflated in price. And of course, that that Basically, 2008, the crisis, which of course starts with a housing crisis, 2008 is the point at which young people who already are being cut out of the of that, being able to access any of that house price, house price bonanza because house prices are too expensive, uh, they are finally cut out of that, basically. And so you can see that that material interests of older people has been basically aligned with the performance of the financial sector and the performance of real estate. If real estate and the financial sector are doing well, then material interests of propertyed older people, so like 75 to 80% of pensioners own their own home outright in the UK. So there's 20 to 25% who are excluded from that and in real, real difficulties financially, of course. Um, and young people's interests are not, uh, are basically uh, are constructed in the opposite way. If the financial sector is doing well, they're doing bad. If the real estate sector is doing well, they're doing bad. You know, the material interests of young people are, are, are linked to the level of wages and lo- level of social spending. And both of those have been utterly catastrophic in the last 10 years. You know, the 2010s will be the worst worst decade for wage growth since uh, the Napoleonic era, which is insane. <laughs> but that's an epochal difference. You know what I mean? If you want to know why young people are moving to the left, older people are moving to the right, that's at least a, a, a sort of a, a starting point. I think the other place that where it divides, though, is because... Um, Material interests only really make sense when they're when, when when they're tied to a sense of what is possible in the future. To return to that theme, right? Because you know, I, this is it's my material interest to do this because in the future it will lead to this. Do you know what I mean? It's inherently linked to a sense of what's possible. And you know that defeated boomer generation. One of the effects of defeat is you do not think that that radical change is possible. Right. And, you know, that's because of the defeats of the 1980s, the fall of the Berlin Wall, globalized, all of that, basically. What is the third way left? What is Blairism apart from the acceptance that change is not possible? <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and that is that is not the, the, the mindset of younger people. You know, there may be they haven't gone through that experience of defeat, but they're also faced with this prospect that they know radical change has to happen and it has to happen incredibly rapidly. Um, and I think that's one of the that, that's that's the distinction between the two. So I think cultural activism is absolutely crucial to crossing that divide. I don't know quite how it does it, really, but it's absolutely crucial to to crossing that divide. Yes. Well, what do you mean by cultural activism? Yeah, and that's a good one. <laughs> so so what needs to so what needs to happen what needs to happen now is and I, I think I bas- I basically um skipped that bit of your question as in you know how, what do we do about this defeat one of the, one of the things we need to do is that that attention has to shift now from parliament to extra parliamentary 
Yes. Yeah. Parliament it, it has to because basically, you know, there's going to be nothing happening in Parliament, as in there's no power to, to, to wield in Parliament at the moment. Uh, and so, you know, it has to turn into a, into trying to change the reality on the ground through sort of what you might call deep organising. Um, I want to want to talk about that. I mean, you know, trying to organise people into into unions, into community unions. I'm a member of Acorn, which is like a well, it's a, it's a social union, but it fo- sort of focuses primarily on housing and renters' rights, etc. And it's spread incredibly rapidly because that's the issue that you would focus on if you want to. Um, exercise power in that way but also i'm talking about you know um other, other forms of solidarity projects such as social provisioning projects food banks etc you know that would be that's sort of like the key in, in in many ways but that has to be linked to a hegemonic project which by, by which i mean you know trying to change the sense of what's possible you know in 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 you know through that world of parliament and the media etc etc that also has to be kept in in play with it, I think. Yes, I, I, oh, I, I didn't mention culture. That did it. I didn't mention culture at all. Yeah, yeah, because it, it, it's interesting. I guess the kind of stories. I mean, one of the one of the I guess recurring themes you you do here, uh, just from the environmental perspective, is people saying that you know, uh, analyzing the I guess the way the environmental movement has has been communicating over you know quite a period of time, being very defeatist, being very negative, uh, you know, beating people over the head rather than. Uh, you know, creating uh, you know what you're talking about, visions of the possible, mm. and so forth. Yeah. And and you know, uh, just wondering what 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 kind of art, you know, what kind of culture is is possible in you know, <laughs> dare I say, late stage capitalism? <laughs> yeah, no, no, yeah. Well, like I say, you know, I, I, um, I may not be the best person to ask because my my sense of what <laughs> of of like cultural movements is very much informed by that post-punk going into the whole acid house uh, era. Do you know what I mean? Um, and, you know, those did depend on certain material preconditions and a certain level of tolerance, although, you know, towards the 80s and through the 80s into the 90s, there was a constant sort of like, you know, political and police crackdown on those sorts of movements. Um, but I, I, one of the things we've been doing with um, in this sort of ACFM project is uh, me and a friend Nadia Idle have been doing these workshops with basically their consciousness raising workshops, and they just basically involve us um, getting a group of people together and getting them to try to think about to talk about their own personal experience, basically talk about their own personal experience and move from that personal experience to try and think about how wider structural forces are conditioning those experiences. Do you know what I mean? So that's a way of like de- trying to denaturalize this. That's a way of expanding possibility by saying, look, you know. Um, your life may feel constrained but that's not that constraint is not something that is internal to you or not necessarily internal to you and therefore unchangeable it is linked to structural conditions and therefore in principle it's changeable do you know what i mean and and one of the ways to think about that is um you know what one of the one of the things that that surrounds our lives today is this huge level of anxiety and well, depression as well, but anxiety and precariousness, etc. And so in some ways, I think those sorts of practices of like, um, almost like degree zero politics or where you get groups of people in the room to talk about their experiences and then link those experiences to structural causes in order to then be able to think about how you overcome those structural causes. That it's almost like the precondition for other forms of politics. 
right? Because you have to sort of re we live such isolated, anxious lives. We have to reestablish the social. Do you know what I mean? We have to reestablish the social as a precondition to um to to other forms of perhaps even more antagonistic forms of of of, of politics. Well, that's very interesting. Uh, yeah, and and brings us to I guess well, one thing I'm interested in is is the you know the kind of extinction rebellion and other kinds of activities yeah. like that. I don't know to what degree you 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 know you've, you've been thinking about this um, and how how effective their their, their approach is. Um, and I mean, I was just wondering, this may be a bit uh, specific, but you know whether or not what 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 have we learned since the days of Occupy? I guess. Um, and I, I don't know whether you, you have thoughts on that, but maybe just touch touch on that because you say about you know I say many different forms of expression of cultural expression, and as you say, some will be you know uh, we say more aggressive or more you know there's different forms really. Mm. Well, I, I'm going to go back before Occupy, <laughs> um, but to the because I was involved in the very early days of the climate camp movement, a camp for climate action. If you remember that, so the first. The first camp for, camp for Climate Action was in 2006. I'm living in Leeds. I'm sat in Leeds now. And it was not too far away from me in Weatherby, this, this huge, the biggest power station in, uh, biggest coal power station in Europe, Drax. And so there was a camp outside uh, and then attempts to go and sort of blockade and stop Drax. Uh, um, and I was sort of involved in that. And that went on through several iterations. And then it basically blew up in 2010 when I went, I went to Copenhagen for the COP15, which is like the Conference of Parties, a UN meeting that happens every year. Um, and, and we basically realized that we were at an impasse with this form of politics because we couldn't exercise the sorts of power that would be needed. It was very much a bottom-up sort of direct action sort of movement. Very much, you know, my what the tradition I come from uh, and um, we reached this at uh, this level where we were at Copenhagen and thought, look, oh, what we're actually doing is militant lobbying of a load of governments because they're the only ones at the moment who've got the power to act. And all of those governments there, they are completely uninterested in doing the sorts of change or uh, and probably unable with the current balance of forces to do the sort of change or transformation that's necessary. You know, and it was that sort of realization that, well, well, OK, then we probably need to do a different form of politics if that's the case. You know, that. Extinction Rebellion has done loads of really good things. I'm, you know, it's really exciting in some sorts of ways. Um, but basically, it, it it has not faced up to that problem. Of it doesn't, you know, basically it's stuck at that level of awareness raising, um, militant lobbying of governments, right? Uh, it didn't learn the lessons of the climate camp. It didn't learn them very, very, you know, consciously didn't learn them. Um because the, the one of the guys who set it up, what's his name? I can't remember. My mind's gone blank. Anyway, you know, he said we shouldn't be listening to these people because, you know, they're addicted to failure and all this sort of stuff. You know, that's the impasse that Extinction Rebellion are at now, right? Because it's got a sort of anti-politics sort of uh, uh, feel, uh, anti-politics um, element to, to Extinction Rebellion, which, which I think is also, uh, you know, viewable from... Um, from the Occupy days as well, that sort of anti-politics. And it gets to that point of like, look, we, we need to move from that to like, how how do we bring about this, the, the sort of the level of transformation that we need in this very, very short period of time? Do you know what I mean? And, and so I think that is a problem that I don't think Extinction Rebellion will be able to solve. But in many ways, we need to look, like think about, we need to think about movements and the left, if you want to put it that way, 
you know, as an ecology itself, you know, an ecology of different organizations can, can do different functions. And if that ecology can be brought into some sort of productive relationship, then you can have change. Do you know what I mean? Uh, and so if you look at Extinction Rebellion, you know, their greatest success was probably getting the Green New Deal passed at a Labour Party conference. They would not see that. Many people involved that would not see that. But like they set the conditions. They and Greta Thunberg, you know, the, the youth climate strikes, which are probably even more important, I think. They set the conditions within which you know, the major unions felt it was not possible to block that policy, right? You know, that's that's a huge thing. Unfortunately, we lost the election. <laughs> but it's still, you know, the Green New Deal now seems to be solidly on on the agenda, uh, you know, within the realm of, like, at least possible to discuss in politics, if not possible to put into place at the moment. That's a huge, massive, major victory by Extinction Rebellion that the climate camp didn't manage to do. Then again, the climate camp, you know, it came into being before the great the financial crisis of 2008 and before it fully start, started to have an effect. And therefore, the, the possibilities for change were much more diminished than Extinction Rebellion's era, I think. It's very interesting uh, what you're saying. It, it just it also makes me wonder um, about um, this, this deep polarization that we're seeing and we have seen, you know, you see it particularly in America and um you know and we've seen it here in the uk as well and you know i think a lot for a, for a long time there seemed to be a kind of an assumption of this of, of about you know communication about climate science that there's a kind of cognitive deficit if we just explain the information if we get this information yeah. over to people then it'll be fine we'll you know we'll, we'll, people will get on board they'll realize that this is you know a major issue and you know it's a, it's it's something we, we have to solve in a, in a short time and I think it's becoming apparent that, uh, you know, people in, in, interpret information in, in very different ways and that, you know, yeah. how, how, depending on the values they hold and the wider social, political, you know, other, other factors like that. And, yeah. you know... Um, but also material interest as well. That's one of the things that doesn't get included, I think, in when we, when we make, have these sort of talks. Is that, you know, based the way people's material interests have been constructed... You know, it's not in their, it's in their, it's in their material interest not to take this stuff on board. Do you know what I mean? And I, and I mean that quite straightforwardly as in, you know, um, uh, it, it, at a certain point when um, uh, if we start to act on climate change seriously and so basically there, there's going to be huge stock market collapse, right? Primarily because all of the, this fossil fuel, be, fuel companies, all of the oil companies, etc. You know, they are valued at the idea that they're all available. Uh, the carbon, carbon, carbon bubbles are going yeah. to be dug up and burned, right? That's what they're valued on. If you do that, then there'll be no one there. There'll be no one here to value anything, right? It, you know, at a certain point, that's going to collapse. <laughs> I'm not saying that, like, you know, a property pensioner sat in, the, in, in his home in Hampstead is thinking about that, right? But it is that, you know, that is why, you know, the material interests of that that pensioner sat in Hampstead has been constructed to be in alliance with some financial oligarch sat in the, the city of London, who is very aware of that. You know, he's very aware of the fact that, um, you know, they're playing a delaying game to try and grab as much resources as possible, knowing that this is not a sustainable situation. Do you know what I mean? I, the, the thing, the thing that happened last year that probably horrified me most was the big, the big forest fires in the Amazon in Brazil, you know, uh, I've got a Brazilian friend I was speaking to and he's saying, like, you know, I'm, I'm in Rio, hundreds of miles away from the Amazon. We can't go outside. 
because of the choking smoke. Then we've seen Australia, etc. But the thing in, in Brazil that worried me the most was it, this was a deliberate policy of the government. You know, you've got a far right government, Bolsonaro, and his environment minister went to the miners and the strip farmers uh, surrounding the Amazon forest and said, you know, you are, Bra- you are Brazil's future. We are going to support you in whatever you do. And they said, right, great, we're going to go and burn the Amazon then. You know what I mean? It was that it was that thing of the, the right have just given up on the future. It's all about we're going to grab what resources we can now and basically F everybody else. You know, that is one way which you can construct material interests. You know, that's what that's what worries me. Like there's a deep polarization. Right. But those uh, that polarization does not mean that like those both poles have equal weight or are equally valid or that, like, you know, that the, the truth lies in the middle of those two poles or anything like that. One side is a, is a based around the denial of the, you know, the fundamental problems that, that are facing humanity, right? You know, there's no way, there's no possible future, right, in which future historians look back and say, Bolsonaro was right. There's just no possible future. We know that, right? <laughs> there's, there, there, there's only a possible future of looking back and saying, yes. The general election of 2019 was an absolute disaster. Yes, Bolsonaro was an absolute disaster for humankind. There's no possible future where that's not true. Do you know what I mean? That's what keeps me up. Yeah, (laughs) no, it's terrifying. It's terrifying. You're talking here about material interests and, and, and the importance of material interests. And I think, you know... People have commented upon the, the the importance, I guess, the fragmentation of the left in terms of identity politics and the, the you know, the, the, trying to get a uh, common, you know, uh, ground, f- f- find common ground with you know, the gender issues and you know, race issues and, you know, which are very important uh, as, as well. Um, and I'm just wondering to, to what extent, I mean, I've seen research in the States at least, which really does tie in, you know, uh, your political view, your view on climate change, you know, so people, for example, you know, and and, and other sets of values that are very intertwined and maybe not so obviously material. I mean, and and, and Naomi Klein was talking to talks a lot about this kind of evangelical, uh, you know, religious kind of rapture based uh, thinking that is around, you know, and uh, Scott Morrison as well tied in with this, you know, this kind of thing. Um, so I'm just wondering, uh, so, so in the United States, for example, you know, this, the people who don't believe in climate change, but they also don't believe in evolution, you know, and there are whole sets of, uh, clusters of, I guess, values that are, you know, that, that come together. And, uh, you know, and, and Naomi Klein was very combative in terms of, you know, wanting to, you know, win, win the battle with, with these, you know, the, these uh, uh, groups and so forth. But I, I'm just wondering also about, you know, ways of working with people, you know, of different values. It was a quote, um, what's the quote, uh, which, which I really liked, uh, uh, is kind of a, a version, I guess, of American pragmatism. Um, what, what was it? Uh, let me just see whether I can find it here. I mean, I think the idea was that the real power of, and, and of politics should not about should not be about getting people uh, to think the same thing, but people with different views to do want to do the same thing. That kind of idea, and you know, it's so a lot of conversations I have tend to get quite. Uh, polarized and and you know, on the one side and the other side and looking at it in, in you know inevitably in kind of battles and conflictual terms and so forth. Um, so this is an observation. I don't know uh, <laughs> whether you have any thoughts there. Yeah, no. I mean that is why 
why, why I'm, I, I want to talk about it in terms of like material interest because like material interests are not set they can be constructed in different ways do you know what I mean and material interests are not just about like oh is this going to put more money in my pocket you know a material interest also it must include you know the obvious sort of like libidinal joy that um, the far right gets from owning the libs do you know what I mean that is basically the motivating affect of like the far right to, to many many degrees is just to you know um to feel a sense of of victory over over um people on the left etc that you have to include that in material interests as well but i think so and, and so the whole the whole of that can just go down to something like you know your social being like it conditions your ideas or your values in some ways do you know what i mean and so that means you know the sort of work you do the, the experiences you have every day etc etc they will set pre you make you predisposed towards certain forms of values and certain forms of uh, political articulation of those interests and, and less disposed to other ones. But that is not a, an iron cage by any means. Do you know what I mean? And so, yeah, so the project is, you know, so for instance about like, so one I'm, I'm thinking about most obviously, right, is this age divide. How do we bridge this age divide? Uh, you know, and you, you basically have to, you have to sort of break the reliance the, the the well alliance actually <laughs> the alliance of interest between older people and you know the financial sector and real estate sector etc you have to break that by offering different forms of material well-being in particular like social care right elder care is the thing that you're most concerned about when you're older and i think in fact a lot of the attachments are like like basically we we want to defend high house prices it's about that idea that like the only the only the only way in which most property pensioners see of ensuring they're going to get the elder care they need is to basically sell their house or to withdraw equity from their house and then use that on private health care you know you provide really good state health care that just dissolves in a moment you know what i mean i mean labor tried to gesture towards that a little bit in the, the last election so in principle material interests can be can be reframed so that they are compatible with other people's material interests, right? And then on top of that, you have to give a political articulation, you have to give a, a polit political sort of story and way of understanding the world, which links those two material interests. You know, I mean, that's the sort of, that's basically what sort of politics is about. Absolutely, absolutely. So you see social movements, you, uh, what, what, what needs to happen? We've just come out of an election. We've, you know, uh, wounds and time to, to, you know, to analyze and think and so forth and, 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 you know, come up with, you know, new ways forward. I mean, whether it's, you know, directly through the lead, new leader of the Labour Party and so forth. I'm just wondering in terms of momentum, keeping momentum, uh, in, 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 you know, after the election, you know, yeah. what, what you're saying. Is that back of a small M? <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed, yes. Probably both, right? Probably both. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, yeah, it's quite hard, isn't it? Because basic, basically what's happened, what's happened is that we've had our time scale of politics changed dramatically in the, in the, you know, over a, basically in one minute <laughs> between like, you know, 9.59 and 10 o'clock like that Thursday when the, <laughs> the, polls, the exit polls came out, you know, we were living in one political reality and then the next one comes along. And, you know, basically for the last, since the 2017 election, which is the real outlier, to be honest, right? That's the 2019 doesn't need explaining. That just fits into the general pattern of decline of social democracy around Europe. 2017 is the like the outlier. You think why? You know that needs explaining. Why did 2017 happen? A reversal of the of the of the long long term trend of diminishing um, uh, 
uh, vote share for, for the Labour Party. Um, but like 2017, that's basically it sort of it sort of forced everybody to think there actually could be a, a sort of left wing Labour government, you know, within six months. And so that really constricts the amount of time scale you're thinking in politics about, you know what I mean? And it's probably not healthy, to be honest. Now, there's not going to be an election for four and a half years. There's just not. So now you can widen your scope a little bit. Do you know what I mean? In some ways, it's an utter disaster because those five years are incredibly precious, right, in terms of, like, um, climate change. Do you know what I mean? The, the, the scale of transformation needed and the time scale to enact that in it, that transformation, they're sort of inversely linked. Do you know what I mean? The longer we put it off, the more and more radical the transformation needs to get. <laughs> you know, there could have been a very gentle transformation, a very reformist and gentle transformation if we just started to de- deal with it seriously in 1990 or even 2000. Now you just need an incredibly massive scale of transformation over a very short period of time, which is very hard to do. Anyway, it's disastrous in that way. But it's but five years gives you time to then start thinking. Well, what you know, electing a government without a movement behind it is basically not going to work, right? To be honest, if 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 Corbyn had won that election, it, that that government probably would have been defeated in six months, right? And now we need to get into a to, to a, a position where that where there's a strong movement, uh, uh, and I think that's going to be around. I think what I think it's going to be around. Building up, you know, this organising, this organising strategy, changing focus from Parliament to wider society, to organising solidarity projects, etc. Um, and then that would be about, um, you know, the next election will be going into an election, basically saying, basically leading, saying, look, this is this is um, what we need to, t- to tackle climate change, um, you know. To to to, uh, to to all the non-Tory parties, to the like the Greens, even to the Lib Dems, you'd be saying, you know, sign on for this, sign on for this, add your own ideas, but sign. This is what needs to happen, right? If you're not going to be a climate change denier, you have to accept it. Sign on for this, and we'll lead a progressive sort of alliance or a democratic alliance. Um, and you and, and you know you'd have to offer, say, look, we need to tackle climate change, and we need a radical democratization of society you need to do both of those at the same time they're intimately linked an easy weekend work no five years five years yes no absolutely absolutely and i'm mindful of the time but it brings us to another interesting area as you said you have a variety of different projects that you're working on and interest research interests and i am interested and i'd like to find out more about uh, this kind of uh, question of governance, democratic self-governance, and and public commons partnerships. I know this is it's one one area you've been researching. Can you just talk a little bit about governance? Talk maybe about the commons to begin with, and why they're important, and maybe because it ties in a little bit what you're talking about in this democratic real in the real sense. Yeah. Well. Well. Look, I'll get into that by saying, like, when I say this turn away from, you know, towards like extra parliamentary movements, etc., and organising on a wider scale, it's going to be a turn away from that, but also to the municipal level, if possible, because that's still the level at which you can get Labour councils to try and do things. Do you know what I mean? Uh, and so that's one of the that's the level of scale I'm thinking of in terms of this this idea of public commons partnerships, which we'll we'll come to in a uh, in a moment. But um, yeah, so. So basically, the core of like 
of of what you might call a Corbynist political economy. It's probably more like more like a McDonaldist actually, because John McDonald was most interested in it. Was this idea of people talk about it as democratizing work or um, the institutional turn? It's been called as well. But this idea of changing the way that um, we we um, govern institutions and institutions govern us, changing the way that they that we do that in order to produce new possibilities and so like perhaps the way to get into that is to think about what was neoliberalism like one of the core features of neoliberalism was reform of governance right which is this introduction of you know sort of markets or pseudo market structures in the governance of public institutions for instance so pseudo markets into the nhs i work in a university you know the university sector higher education sector has been absolutely destroyed by these by what you might call audit culture, where you've got like these constant audits of, of of your activity in order to try to fit those the results of those audits into these pseudo market forms of governance, right? And there's there's only one reason you do that. You do that to try to transform the way people think about themselves and understand themselves in the world. So Margaret Thatcher famously said, uh, "Economics is um, is the uh, tool, but the goal is to change the human soul." And she said, so the change in the human soul is to change the way we think about ourselves. When you when you when you participate in a competitive market, you have to behave as though you are a a, a selfish, rationalizing, autonomous individual who is whose in, material interests are at um, uh, 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 inversely related to other people's material interests. That's what a competitive market is. You know, you're forced to behave in that way. I am as an academic. I'm forced to behave in that way as though my colleagues are actually my competitors. Uh, and, you know, if you do that enough, it starts to become the common sense view of like what the world is. The world is made up of these selfish, rational, autonom- autonom- autonomous uh, individuals delinked from everybody else out to maximize their utility at everybody else's expense. That was the project to reform us that, 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 that neoliberalism and Thatcherism set out to do. So the aim is, you know, we have to reverse that in some way. Right. We have to create um, institutions that create different sorts of de- of 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 subjectivities what we might call democratic subjectivities who see other people as like you know not as a problem but as the potential allies for, for for solutions do you know what i mean joyful institutions we may say to come back to that spinoza's conversation we're having earlier and so that's why i'm interested in the commons right because the commons is about it's about like collective ownership by collective governance at the same time right and so the participation the the idea is if we can spread the common sector of the economy Right. More and more people will have experience of interacting with commons, being commoners, collectively governing commons. Right. And that could be like and I can talking in terms of workers co-ops as well as all sorts of other sorts of commons. You know, and that sets up that means that we develop these sort of democratic subjectivities, which basically mean that um, the democratization, the wider democratization of wider society is much more possible. Right. And so this idea of public common partnerships, it's obviously a. It's like a, it's an attempt to reverse engineer public-private partnerships. These PPPs, um, a subsection of PPPs was PFI, private finance initiatives. You know, and very quickly, very quickly, what 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 happened with the PFIs? Yeah, PFIs and PPPs. Basically, they're they're a way of, of introducing a financial logic into the governance of public sector, right? Um, yeah. So basically, it's about. Um, so p- p- private par- public partnerships would be that um, a new a PFI would, would be that the private sector would um, build a new hospital, say, right? And then they would run that hospital 
and then the, the state would give would pay off that initial capital outlay it would pay it off over 30 years and so you so the company involved gets this guaranteed return massively inflated costs them like uh, between two and three times more uh, to do it that way than to just to, to finance it finance it and do it as the states basically but it, it pushes the costs off, off off the balance sheet so it looks better for the state you know and the purpose of doing that is is that you, you that the financial sector then exercises its discipline um and and creates efficiencies right but when we look into those efficiencies what those efficiencies really mean are you offload costs onto others right so what we, when we look at pfi schemes what you see is that you know Workers sacked, re-employed under worse conditions and less wages. The costs, those efficiencies are being just offloading those costs onto workers. Service users, they get much worse uh, service provision. Um, You know, wider society has to pick up all of the costs, et cetera. The costs get offloaded. So basically, these are fake efficiencies. That's what financialization is. It's fake efficiencies pushing costs onto those either um, people or areas such as environment, which basically has not got the ability anymore to fight back and assert its own interests and so that's what public private partnerships are basically that's what they were there there for um and so public common partnerships is is the opposite it's like we're going to protect commons and workers co-ops and you know cooperatively run um energy companies etc we're going to protect them from the discipline of the financial sector so that they don't have to offload their costs onto the environment or onto other people, et cetera. And so the way we did that is we're trying to think through that the public in relation, in, in cooperation with commons uh, and, and jointly governing these, these projects, right. Um, the, the, our whole aim is that like the surpluses that come from a, a public common partnership, right. The profits of the surpluses, Right after operating costs, they go into financing other public common partnerships. So it's an attempt to build a self-expansive dynamic into the commons, right? Uh, to counter the self-expansive dynamic of capital. I'll explain that. But capital is basically you get some money, resources, you invest them, right, in order to get a return, and the return's got to be like two, three percent at least. You have to meet or beat market expectation. But you take that surplus. And you don't go and spend it on a Maserati, or perhaps a little bit of that. That surplus gets reinvested into new capital projects. And so that the dynamic is always to spread capital, you know, capital as we know it, capitalism as we know it has to grow by like, you know, around 3% a year, or we say we're in recession. And that's compound growth, right? So there has to be like 3% more and more services, et cetera, provided by, by, um, capitalism every year right which is why it's not there's not why that's why it's incompatible capitalism is incompatible with with solving the climate crisis basically life on this planet (laughs) yeah but but like basically you know that is a way in which more and more areas of life have to come under this what you might call the capital circuit or you know being enmeshed in capital so capital social relations our idea is you you basically you have a similar dynamic built into the commons so more and more commons the common sector expands so more and more activity and uh, social activity and life can be exercised under the commons right uh, and you do that by this this mechanism of um the the surplus of any public common partnerships gets invested into what we call the circuit of the commons so it gets it goes and capitalizes new public common partnerships basically and are there examples of that is this what state of development are these is this this these ideas 
Well, basically, this is something me and a friend, Bertie Russell, have been developing over the last couple of years. And, and uh, we have examples of like partial partial fulfillments of this. So there's an energy company in Wolfhagen in Germany, which which has got this very many of these characteristics, apart from the reinvestment of surplus. But it's like basically it's jointly governed by like what you might call a commons association. Um, and then jointly governed by the, the the local state. And in our model, we'd also have joint governance by other stakeholders. So there'd be a three-way sort of governance model. Um, so like, you know, we, we can see where there's different areas, but we've sort of put this together. And at the moment, we're talking with three different, there, we've got like three projects, which are, we're trying to get a sort of proof of, a proof of concept off the ground, right? So we've got three different projects, which we are trying to push through. One of which looks as though it's going to, it's going to happen. Unfortunately, I can't, go into any details because it's all embargoed at the moment and so that's the idea is we want to do a sort of proof of concept of this idea right and it would be proof of concept more of the of the sort of joint governance structure and how it might work etc with the idea that you know we put four or five of these projects in place um before trying to make it into a national scheme now i've got five years to do this so it's fine <laughs> before we were really rushing to try and think about it <laughs> obviously i don't think boris is going to go for this but there are local authorities who are looking for for ways in which you know this solves certain problems this this model solves certain problems for local authorities in particular this problem of them you know the the problem of of the right to buy for instance you know that that you you do public spending and all of a sudden it gets snapped up by the private sector and therefore out of the realms of any future any future sort of municipal government um uh, authority to, to 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 do anything with that and so now in the private sector, so we want to do the same public spending but it gets in the common sector so that any future uh, authority local authority cannot get at it and reverse the process do you know what i mean right. that's so, so we're hopeful that that will be an attractive thing to sort of build up as a proof of concept and then maybe you know you might have a government which was susceptible to you know rolling this out on a, on a sort of national scale with it with that national scale backing who knows who knows <laughs> well it's just such an important area a neglected area the commons and even the 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 idea that the most people have in their head if they have one about it, is the tragedy of the commons which isn't actually yeah. true but it's it's such yeah. a, a i think such a fertile way of framing and thinking about you know uh social uh good and 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 and, and the environment and so forth yeah. and uh, i wish you the very best of success with this project as you save a little bit of time but uh you know we need a uh, flowering of different governance and 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 and, and ways of approaching and, and thinking about you know uh building uh, organizations to create social capital and i wish you the very best and thank you so much for your time today thanks i really enjoyed it actually it was a good discussion <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.